as the kids uh, take off to uh, children's worship. We close out our series, and you may not be happy, I am happy. We close out this series in the Gospel of John. Someone asked me uh, how long I've been dealing with this Gospel of John. I started a year ago, October, dealing with this uh, text, getting ready for it. And then we spent a whole year now uh, dealing with the Gospel of John. And I am ready to head to the Old Testament. Next week, we'll be starting a series called Redeeming Ruth. Uh, out of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, and I am looking forward to that. Not that I don't have anything uh, nice to say about the Gospel of John, but I am done. I've done what I think I need to out of the Gospel of John, and we're moving forward. And uh, we have spent the last year focused on the life of Jesus Christ through the eyes of the Apostle John. And we've seen the descriptions of Christ. We have learned about the declarations of Christ. We talked about the demonstrations of Christ's power through the miracles. And then for the last four weeks, we have centered our uh, minds and our hearts on the last couple chapters of this book of John by looking at Christ and his deliverance for our sin, for our suffering. Last week, we learned about his deliverance from our second guessing. And this week, we learn about deliverance from our shame. And so what we are going to do is we're going to, as always, uh, finish up this series by looking uh, to video and watching the last chapter of John before our eyes. But before we do that, I ask again that we would go into an atmosphere of prayer as I pray for our time together. Father God, we come before you with your words in our hands. And Father, uh, we come with a myriad of emotions this morning. And Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us in a powerful way. Father God, I pray for those that are struggling with the issue of shame and the issue of failure this morning. And Father, I pray that there would be a word from you today. Lord, we know that your word is living and active and it's able to deal with all our dysfunction and all our sins. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in this place and begin to open our eyes and open our hearts. For we want to see Jesus this morning. We give all the glory and all the praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we look at the closing of this book, we see that John, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is moved to write about the restoration of Peter. Now, why would he write about something like that? Matthew ends his gospel by speaking of the Great Commission. Mark and Luke speak of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. But nothing like that is shared in John's gospel. It would seem to me that God is wanting to teach us one more lesson from this book. It's closed out. It appears that God wants us to understand something about God's grace amidst our failures and our shame. Now, we know that Jesus alone is able to deliver us from the failures and shame that you and I face in life. And as we open up this passage this morning, we see that it is sometime between the resurrection and the day of Pentecost before the ascension of Christ. And we see Jesus interacting with the disciples, but in particular, Peter, on this theme of shame. And for the next couple of moments, I want to explore not only the issue of shame and failure, but look at depth at his life and how Christ delivered him from his failure and his shame. And by doing so, teaching us how we can find victory over it as well. The first thing we need to understand 
as we look at this last chapter is that shame, shame is a result of our failures. Shame comes as a result of our failures. Now, John ends his gospel by giving us a bird's eye view of how Jesus delivered one of his dearest and closest friends from shame. But before we go on to finding out how he delivered him, we need to find out what this issue of shame is. Shame has been identified as the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper or ridiculous. It arises from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper or ridiculous. Now, shame can come as a result of something you've done or something that has happened to you, or it can happen as a result of something happening or someone doing something that's close to you. I will tell you, there are many times in my life, in the 31 years that I've been on this earth, that I have felt this emotion of shame. As a high energy kid whose mouth and whose body moved a lot faster than my brain would, I found myself in numerous occasions being ashamed of what I did. As a junior hire and even as a senior hire, I struggled with the issue of self-esteem like many teenagers did. And, and there were days and times that I'm sad to say that I was ashamed of even how God had created me because I didn't look like that cool kid or I wasn't able to do what those popular ones were able to do. But also there's been shame in my life as a result of the many sins that I've committed. As a Christian, as an elder, as a teacher of the Word of God, I am shamed by some of the things that I do. And yet this thing of shame is one of the greatest hindrances that we as Christians have when it comes to confessing sin. We are commanded to confess sins one to another, but that doesn't happen very often in the evangelical church today. Why? Because we as people are shamed of our sin. And the last thing we want to do is articulate to others what we've done wrong. So what begins to happen is many Christians become burdened with shame. There are many here today and you wouldn't even know it from how they walk or how they talk. They are in bondage to the issue of their past failures or the shame that they contain. But not all failures are always our fault. Not all sins um, are not always our sins are the things that bring us shame. We can have shame because someone has done something to us. There are many here today and my prayers are for you. Those who have been in some sort of abusive relationship, whether early on as a child or even now, who find themselves suffering from the failure of another. And yet you are still in bondage to that shame. Teenagers feel this element of shame every time their parents are even within a one mile radius of any of their friends. And they say, I don't want mom or dad drop me off a couple miles from school because I don't want to be shamed by hanging out with my parents. Parents are shamed by their children when their children do stupid things or wear clothing that doesn't appeal to the popular culture. So there's a two way street going on with parents and kids. How about at work? When that coworker, that zealous Christian goes and shares their faith as a Christian, we feel two kinds of shame. 
Number one, we're ashamed that people may find out that we're a Christian. And they may begin to make fun of us as they do that co-worker who's so bold about their faith. But the second feeling of shame we have is the Holy Spirit begins to move in our heart and say, why weren't you the one who would share your faith first? I don't know about you, but our lives can be filled with shame. And the problem with this issue of shame is it's a major problem because it doesn't work alone. When shame comes into the life of an individual, it calls for a party. It begins to say, hey, all my buddies come and hang out with me. And some of its buddies are alienation, inadequacy, helplessness, powerlessness, defenselessness. As a result, we're weak, we're insecure, we're uncertain, we feel unworthy, we're hurt, we're intimidated, we're defeated and rejected. And I will tell you that every one of those things that shame brings is nothing that Christ wants for us as his children. So today we want to begin to nullify this emotion of satanic driven shame. Now I will tell you there is a place for shame in the life of the believer. Shame is good when we sin because it brings us to a place of confession. When we sin, we should be shameful, uh, be feeling ashamed as a result of our sin. It's an affront to a holy God. And it's that emotion that moves us to go and to say to the Lord, I am sorry, forgive me of my sin. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning. I am talking about after restoration and forgiveness are done. And that feeling hangs over you like a dark rain cloud. And you'd say, Tim, if shame is so bad, why would we stay in it? Why would we keep ourselves in that season of shame? Well, it's not so easy to run away from. You see, shame comes when we mess up. As a teenager who grew up in this church, there were God-given humility uh, patrol people that used to tell me all the time growing up, especially as I became an adult and began to start teaching and things. People would come up and those that had known me for a long time say, oh, I remember when Tim did this stupid thing as a teenager. Oh, he'll never grow up. He'll never do this. And, you know, I say that and people say, oh, you know, did people really say that? Yes, they did. And it was it, it blew my mind. And it said, you know, I'm never going to be any good. And we as adults need to be so very careful that when we see teenagers coming in and the teenagers are doing crazy things and maybe they screw up or maybe they do their hairdo in a different way or maybe they speak out of turn. We need to be so very careful that we do not judge those kids, but we teach them. God forbid one of our daughters, one of the young ladies in this church comes to the church pregnant out of wedlock. And we don't need to sit there and beat them down, but we need to show love and compassion. Let the Spirit of Almighty God do the convicting in their hearts. Not shame them. Not make them feel like there's nothing more they can do. We need to love them and minister to them as Jesus did with Peter. So don't remind them of their failures. But you know what happens, especially when we sin? The devil goes into full steam. And you know what he does? The Bible says that he's the accuser of the brethren. And he goes and he's standing before God in heaven. And at different times and in different ways, he goes and he takes our names before him. And he says, how can Tim call himself a believer? How can he be a preacher? Do you see, God, what he is doing? And he says that he is your son. 
And the devil comes and says, how can you be a believer? How can you call yourself a Christian? Only if everybody would find out what you're doing right now. And the feeling and emotion of shame overtakes us. So where do we find victory? Where do we find the defeat of one of our greatest enemies as Christians? Peter is given the victory. And we see it in John chapter 21. But to understand it a little more, we need to know who Peter is. Of course, we know Peter is one of the disciples. In fact, he's the spokesman of the twelve. Peter's a lot like your preacher. He was a passionate, just all going 100 percent kind of guy. Now, it seemed that Peter, like your preacher, would be one who would be always the first one to speak. There's nothing to think about. Just start talking and the answer will come. That was the motto that Peter lived with. He was a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And as a result, he would find himself in numerous struggles. But you know, he wasn't always a failure. Peter, along with James and John, were a part of this inner circle with Jesus. Peter wasn't just some terrible failure, but God had used him to do great things. Remember this, Peter is the one who says in Matthew 16, Jesus goes and says, who do people say that I am? And the other disciples come up with some answers. And Peter says, you are the cross, the son of the living God. And of course, Jesus says, and you are Peter. And upon this rock, his, his testimony of Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overtake it. Peter's the one while out on the sea and Jesus comes walking on water. None of the other disciples ever ask, but Peter dares to ask, can I walk out to you? And of course, we know that Peter then walked on water. This guy had some great successes, but he had some big defeats. First thing we see in the life of Peter in your outline is, is that we see this picture of failure. And I want to quickly move through this as fast as I can without taking away from it. The first thing we see in Peter's life is the place of failure. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Matthew 26. We're going to spend a moment in Matthew 26 and then move back to John 21. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 35. We need to find out how this great leader, this one that was so devoted, how did he fail? And what brought him to that place? In Matthew 26, verse 31, it says this. This is, of course, before Jesus is arrested. And Jesus tells them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Verse 33, Peter replies, he's the first one, always the first one to talk. This is what he says, even if all fall away, he's speaking of the other disciples, even if the other 11 fall away on account of you, I never will. Let's stop there for a moment. The first thing that causes Peter's failure is an overestimation of his own spiritual place with Christ. The reason why he fails is he has an overestimation of his own spirituality. He thinks he's all that in a bag of chips, and he's not. He thinks that he's got it all figured out, but he doesn't. In fact, he goes so far as to begin to argue with Jesus. 
What Peter is saying is, Jesus, all right, okay, shep alls, sheep scatter, all of you will fall away. And Peter says, wait a minute, Jesus, you don't know me like I know me. You don't know what's going on in my head, what's going on in my heart. I am a faithful guy. I'm a faithful follower. And everybody else may fall away, Jesus, but I never will. Be careful that you never overestimate your own spiritual position in the areas of temptation and defeat. There have been many a godly men and women who said, I will never fall to things like adultery. I will never fall to the issue of pride. I will never fall to the issue of lying or cheating. And the newspaper articles and the church history all throughout the world has told us that those men and women that thought they were so strong in the Lord fell and fell hard. Proverbs 16, 18 is good for us to hear. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So here Peter just lives out Proverbs 16, 18. He lays out this great statement. It's full of pride and overestimation about who he is. Now, I wonder if Peter was thinking about his words when he said it. There have been I have uttered words that the moment they left my lips, I knew they would haunt me for a long time. You ever said something maybe to your child or to your spouse or, or to someone you care about or even a perfect stranger? And the moment you said it, you said, why did I say that? What was I thinking? We know that Peter must not have been thinking much about it because look at the response Christ gives in verse 34. I tell you the truth. Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Here goes Peter again. He should have kept his mouth shut, but he declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then I, I like this and all the other disciples said the same. Like, oh man, if he's going that far. All right, yeah, Jesus, we, will, we won't do that either. Peter's the leader. They follow Peter in what he says. But we know what happens just a couple hours later, don't we? We know that when Jesus is arrested, Peter, just like everyone else, runs off. Peter does the exact opposite of what his great statement of affirmation was all about. Peter forsakes Jesus. It's recorded in uh, Matthew twenty-six fifty-six. But look at what it says. And I want to uh, place some time on this. In verse 58, it tells us that Peter decides to follow Jesus at a distance. One of the other translations says from afar off. When Peter finds himself surrounded by the enemies of the Lord, it makes it very difficult for him to stand strong. Here's a quick application. Be careful, church at what you profess here in this building surrounding these people. You want to be a person of integrity? Make sure that what you say here on Sunday is the same message you're preaching on Monday. Don't say something because it's easy to say Jesus is Lord here unless you are willing to go before anybody and everybody and announce that same message. It was easy for Jesus, or I'm sorry, it was easy for Peter to say that he would never deny him. That's easy to say in church. It's hard to say at the office place. It's hard to say that at school. It's hard to say that with family and friends that don't believe in Jesus at all. 
That's what Peter does. And he announces this. Now, it says that he was walking from a distance watching this. It says in verse 38, but Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. One of the places of Peter's failure, the place of failure is found not only in your overestimation of who you think you are in Christ, but when you begin to follow Jesus at a distance. Now, he hasn't denied anybody at this point. And he knows something's going on. And he is concerned about where Jesus is going. So he stays a distance away from him. Instead of identifying with him, he says, well, I identify with him, but only in a certain way, only with a certain proximity will I be with him. And what happens? Of course, we know that he denies Jesus then three times. Let me ask you a question. How far off are you from your Jesus this morning? How far are you following him? How far back? I will tell you that the farther back you get, the more easy it will become to deny Christ when people ask. Aren't you with that, Jesus? Aren't you one of those Christians? It was very easy for Peter to say, no. I can tell you if he was standing next to Jesus, it would have been very difficult for him to do that. But by himself, away from the disciples, away from his Savior, it was very easy to say, I do not know him we see the next thing and that is that he fails of course three times he says i I don't know jesus and we see the pain of the failure the text tells us that when peter denies jesus on the third occasion the bible tells us that at that moment the rooster crows announcing a new morning in fact in matthew 26 75 it says at that moment that peter remembered the word of jesus that jesus had spoken Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And it says he went outside and wept bitterly. The Greek literally is his insides became undone. He lost his composure. He knew that he had failed. He knew that he had screwed up. He knew that this was going to forever change the way Jesus looked at him. He said there and said, ah, how could Jesus ever look at me again like this? I blew it. How true that is of many of us today. Many of us are at that moment. The roaster has crowed and we have sat in failure. I can't believe I did this. This will forever change the way people look at me at church. This will forever change the way Jesus looks at me. This will forever change my Christian life. And I will tell you, there's some truth to that. Because the Bible says that he went out and wept bitterly. And what that tells us is Peter's new condition was one of being completely miserable. He knew that he had wronged the Lord. He knew that he had violated a special friendship and relationship. And as a result, he was a miserable man. I will tell you, when you choose to follow Jesus from afar, when you choose to go your own way, when you choose to deny Christ as a child of God, your life will not go well with you. It will be miserable. As a child of God, we believe and wholeheartedly stand upon that we do not lose our salvation no matter what sin we uh, are convicted of and what we do. But I will tell you, you will feel like you've lost your salvation in those moments where you blow it big with your Savior. 
Many a times I have blown it and I have sinned grievous sins before my God and before my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I have walked away and I do not feel the connection of God's people. I do not feel the love and the kindness that God gives. It's there. But because of my unwillingness to remain in fellowship, it feels like I am so far away from my Savior. And that's exactly what Peter is feeling. Next, we see the price of sin. After sin, uh, after Peter sins, he feels a definite loss, of course, of fellowship, of peace, of joy. He knows things are going to be different. And what we need to understand is that when we choose to go a different way, it is going to carry a high price tag on it. We most certainly can lose our fellowship, maybe not our salvation, but our fellowship with Christ. And as a result, there's a loss of peace, joy, and contentment. There's loss of blessing. There's loss of rewards. Why? Because sin, excuse me, is a cruel taskmaster. And it just wants to beat Christians silly. And the sad thing is, is we play around with these things and say, I'll just look for a little bit on my computer. I'll just uh, maybe just say a couple curse words, but not all of them. I, I may just tell a little white lie and we play games and we start dan with this thing called sin. And sin is ready to pounce on us. It's ready to destroy us. And that's what it does with Peter. It comes in and it begins to wreak havoc in his life. I don't know about you, but more than I'd like to admit, I have come to places in my life where I have hated the decisions I've made because I chose sin over my Savior. And I say that not for you to to just say, well, wow, Tim's got some real issues. But I would hope that that would resonate in your heart and say, yes, there are times where I've blown it. The greatest thing that we can do as Christians is to hate sin. To mortify and just to be mortified of and to say, I don't want any of it. That's why the Bible speaks so clearly about men and women of the faith who blow it. The Old Testament's all about, man, this guy's doing great. Moses doing great. Then he killed guy. David's doing great. Man, after God's own heart, he sleeps with someone else other than his wife. And then he kills the girl's husband. He blows it. We talk about Solomon and all his wisdom. And he's got 700 wives and concubines. And he begins to ruin his kingdom. As a result, we see prophets, men and women of the faith who did great things for God, but they blew it. Why? So that we will read that and open his word and say, all right, if David could fall to adultery, I can fall to adultery. If David fell to this, then I can fall to it. If so and so did this as a man of God or a woman of God, what makes me think that I am incapable of doing those things? We have a pride in our hearts and in our hearts and our minds this morning that we think there are certain things that we are incapable of doing. I will tell you by God's grace this morning, you have not fallen to the sins that could have befell you before today. By the grace of God. So what do we do? Heavy first point. What do we do? Turn to John 21. John 21. What's the answer, Tim? We live with this shame. We fail. What's the answer? What did Peter do? Look at what it says in John 21, verses 1 through 3. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas called Demas. That's another guy that really failed a chapter before. 
Nathanael from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I want to quickly hit on three things this morning about what failure involves. First of all, it involves your choices. Peter tells the group that he's going out to fish. Now, most commentaries put this in a negative light. They say that this is not just to pass the time. But what this, in fact, is meaning is that Jesus has died on the cross and he's rose again and they've seen him twice. And what John says to us is that Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. The idea here is that Peter is going to his old way of life. What must have been going on through Peter's mind was, all right, I've blown it. And so what that means is I probably am not going to be whatever Jesus has set up for a ministry. I'm probably not going to be the vital role I was in it prior to my disowning of Christ. Now, we know that he hadn't talked about it yet with Jesus. But we can sense that he's probably saying, you know, it better better be good. It's good for me to just go and be what I was to go fish, to give up. And there's some of us here today who are ready to give up on God, ready to give up on church because failures have kept us from feeling the joy to serve, the joy to worship and the peace to know that God has forgiven us of our sins. But look at what happens next. He takes some companions with him. Peter, again, being a leader, attracts others to follow him and going back to his former way of life. Now, does Peter say, hey, come with me? No, this is so critical for us as parents and for us as church leaders. Be careful about the decisions that you and I make, because we may think they're good for us. But I know that Peter probably would have not wanted the disciples to follow them, him. But they did. And we need to be very careful as parents and as church leaders and as people that, while we make decisions, we may think, well, I'm the only one making this decision about Christ. I'm the only one that makes this decision. And yet there are other people who follow. My son, four years old, he sees what I wear and he will fight his mother because he wants to be just like daddy. You don't think my son's going to be watching how I live my life as a Christian? He watches how I dress. If I put on a pair of shorts, it may be 30 below zero out. And he says, hey, it's time to wear shorts. Daddy's wearing shorts. We need to be so very careful. The decisions we make will always bring companions. Finally, we see the consequences of this pursuit of the old way of life. Verse three, I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught. Help me out here. What they catch? The Greek in that, if we want to exegete that, the Greek literally means nothing. They caught nothing. There was nothing there. Let me tell you that when you choose to go back to your old way of life before your time with Jesus, I will assure you of something. You may find success in this world. You may find money. You may find new happiness. But I will tell you at the end of the day, there will be nothing in your net. There'll be nothing. And something will come, whether it's sickness, whether it's some sort of ailment that does not allow your money is not any kind of help to you in that time. Or maybe it'll be your new friends and some issue will come. I will tell you that when you go outside of God's will at the end of the day, there will be nothing. That's the consequence of that kind of life. We accomplish 
nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, the exegeting of that Greek word is the word nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Peter says, I'll go and I can fish. I know I can fish. And apart from Jesus, he couldn't even fish right. He labored all day, all night, it says. And that's what failure brings. Second point this morning. What do we do? Shame, we see, is removed through the words of a faithful friend. They're removed through the words of a faithful friend. Here we have the disciples out fishing. For a whole evening they catch nothing. I wonder if there was a conversation going on. Maybe saying, hey, maybe we should go back. Or, man, why aren't we catching anything? We usually catch stuff. What's going on today? And that endless hour of just sitting in the boat, not catching a thing, And the Bible tells us that Jesus shows up. Now, there are three applications we see in this. The first one is, is that Jesus found Peter. Understand something. Peter's in this time of failure. Peter's in this time of shame. Does Peter go looking for Jesus? No. Does Peter wonder where Jesus is at? No. But Jesus comes and he positions himself to make sure that Peter sees him. And he makes sure he goes and finds him. And he says, you know what? This is so critical for us as Christians to understand that in our time of failure, in our time of shame, that it isn't us many times who are looking for Jesus. I know that in my times of failure, the last thing I want to do is go to Jesus. But it's amazing how Jesus comes to me. And he comes and he begins to minister to me. And that's the second point there. And that is that he fed him. Not only does he find them, but he feeds them. In John 21, 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. This is huge. This is huge. In the Middle Eastern culture, it's a lot different than what we as Americans have. In the Middle Eastern culture, you don't have a meal. You don't sit down with anybody that you have any issues that are left undone. I will tell you, I've been a part of family get-togethers where the family has not sat down, in my Middle Eastern family, has not sat down until a resolution to the problem between two people has been resolved. And what does Jesus say? He says, let's go have some breakfast. Now, why is this so important? Because Jesus doesn't go right away and say, Peter, all right, Peter, I'm here. I'm going to restore you. But we first got to talk about your issues. You blew it, Peter. You really messed up. You should never have denied me, but you did. So let's fix it. What does he do? He ministers to him in the spirit of fellowship. The first thing we need to do, especially if someone has, has sinned or wronged, is to not just bring the hammer down. We want to bring the hammer down, make sure they know their sin. Jesus could have brought the hammer down, and he doesn't. It says that he feeds them, and he ministers to them. And that's what he does with us when we fall to sin. He doesn't sit there and just begin to bring it down upon us, but he Spends time with us. I think it's quite an amazing thing that when we gather together around the Lord's table, that preaching isn't the primary focus. That prayer isn't the big issue. That uh, singing isn't the major thing. But as we gather around the communion table, it is all about Jesus sharing a meal with us. Why? 
Because we come broken. We come full of shame. We come with broken relationships. And what does Jesus do? He says, let me remind I've done. How does He remind us? By saying, here's the bread and here's the cup. And He says, come, let's have fellowship together. Why does God have us do that? Why do we do that as a church? Because we are broken people. We're people that mess up and we hurt one another. And what does Jesus say? He says, hey, come around the table and remember what I did for you. That's what Jesus does here. Brings them around the table. But we see finally He frees them. Jesus frees Peter. Here Jesus makes inroads to his friends, both the disciples and also Peter. And he frees them. Now, this would uh, greatly resolve some of the issues of shame that Peter was facing. If you've ever wronged somebody, I, I, a couple years ago, uh, probably four or five years ago, I, I, as a teenager, many of you know, I was a, a big prank artist. And many times those pranks have given me great renown, okay? Other times they have bit me so much. I will tell you, the last real prank I did bit me so bad. I made a prank phone call to my aunt. Family was around, everyone saying, hey, Tim, do it, do it. Nobody offered $20 this time, but I said, okay, I'll do it. And we, were, we love our aunt. It wasn't done maliciously. And I made this prank phone call. It freaked my aunt out. And I didn't mean to do it, but I'll tell you, the moment I hung up that phone, I felt like the most worthless individual I've ever felt like. I was like, I I can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? I I just wanted to crawl into a hole. And it took months. And the Lord worked on my heart. I said, well, she'll forget about it. And she didn't. And and it became an issue within the family. And, And I finally wrote this letter. And I said, you know what? I just need to apologize. I need to tell you how sorry I am. I came upon that letter a couple weeks ago. And I am so glad at the restoration that has taken place. But let me tell you something. My aunt could have come and could have just beaten me down with every negative thing. What were you thinking? Who do you think you are? What do you think you were doing? But she doesn't. And she didn't. And I was able to resolve some things. Jesus could have done that. But He doesn't. And He allows... Peter to begin to understand this restoration. Instead of just correcting him and teaching him, Jesus teaches us that we are to spend time with people, those that even fail in a big way. We need to identify that there's fear and there's shame surrounding that person's failure and that it may take some time. It took Jesus some time to work in my heart to change me because I probably would have been defense. Defensive as a result of this prank that I did. But you know what? The Lord began to work in my heart and show me, Tim, there are some real needs that need to be, things that need to be fixed in your life. And you know what? I, I look back at that time, I, I want to say it was five or six years ago now, that God was beginning to work on me and my mouth and what I used my mouth for because He wanted to make me a spokesman for His people. And God used that time of failure and shame to say, be so very careful, my son. Be so very careful that you don't open your mouth and use it to harm people, but use it to bring forth the good. But that takes time and it takes Jesus coming and meeting us in that place. But the question is, once Jesus does that, Jesus restores the relationship. But what happens then? 
I want you to focus for a moment. Think about hanging out with the 11 of your closest disciples, your friends. Okay. And what happens? You fail. You're one of the leaders. You're one of the chief spokespeople of your group. And you blow it with your savior, your friend. And Jesus comes and he restores you. The first question I would have is, what is everybody else thinking? What are they thinking about what I did? If I was to blow it here, my first question would be, well, what's God think? My second question would be, what do the people of Village Bible Church think? Can they forgive me? Can they forget it? Can they allow me to continue moving on and ministering? Can they do that? That's what Peter must have been thinking, I'm sure. And how do we get rid of that? Well, the third point this morning is that shame is reversed. Shame is reversed through an obedient future. This is where all the application comes in. And I want to be very clear about this. Because there are many here today who struggle with shame. There are issues in your past that haunt you. There are people here who are abused at a young age and have never been able to get beyond it. And it wreaks havoc in your life. There are people here who have had divorces. And of course, in the church, divorce is the crimson stain that never changes, right? And there are people there are saying, I don't even want to tell people I've been divorced. Because the church don't look fondly upon that. And there are people that have fallen to adultery. There are people that have gotten themselves into criminal issues. There are people that have issues with rebellious children. We've all got areas. We've all got problems that we struggle with that bring forth shame. But I will tell you, and this is so very important. You want to change that? I want to assure you that Jesus says that that shame should not define you. It should not define you. I was a young boy that couldn't keep his mouth shut. And for the longest time, I believed in my heart that I'd be a nobody because my issues and my failures defined me as a human being. And Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. How does he do it? He says there's a reversal that takes place. Let's look at it quickly before we close out this time. How do we restore ourselves from places of failure and shame? This is what Jesus says, and I love it. He brings Peter back and he begins to restore him. But what does he do? Does he just let the failure go? No. Please understand that when I say that we need to love and we need to nurture and care for people that fail, that that doesn't mean there isn't a place called church discipline involved in that. Jesus doesn't just say, all right, let bygones be bygones. Let's move on. I didn't want to hold it against you anyway. He holds Peter to task. On his failure, but he does it in a loving and caring way. Look at what he says in verses 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He's speaking of the disciples there. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Once the meal's done, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me more than these? Why does what's he talking about more than these? Speaking of the disciples. Why is he saying that? Because remember what Peter did. Peter said, if everybody else falls away, I will remain true to you. So Peter go or Jesus goes back to Peter and he says, all right, let me ask you again. Do you love me more than these? 
And Peter begins to have his thoughts begin to go. And he says, yes, I love you. And we're going to talk about that for a moment. But that statement is true. Now, Jesus asks this question three times. Do you love me? Why would you do that? There's great significance. Jesus wants three affirmations of love for three affirmations of denial. Jesus says, hey, I was wronged three times. You denied me three times. I want to ask you again, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And one of the commentaries said that Peter was grieved. The reason why is that he was replaying in his mind the three times that he denied Jesus on that terrible day of his failure. Understand that when Jesus restores us, it isn't always easy. It's going to mean that he's going to bring that stuff back up, but that stuff's got to get out of there because if it doesn't, it will remain in you and it will eat alive. So Jesus says, we've got to bring it up. So do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And as he's saying that, Peter's releasing this bondage of failure and shame. But look at what it says. He says, do you love me? Now, Jesus is asking a very specific question in regards to the kind of love that he's talking about. Jesus uses the word agapao. It's the word that we get agape love. Jesus says, do you agapao me? And what does Peter say? He doesn't say, yes, I agapao you. He says, I love you, but he uses the word phileo. Agapao means a selfless, sacrificial, and unending love. And how does Peter respond? Yes, I love you like a brother does. I love you like a friend. Jesus asks the question again, do you agapao me? Do you love me? Agape love. And he says, yes, I phileo. I love you like a brother. And the third time, again, he's grieved that Jesus asked the third time. And Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? He says, all right, I'll come and I'll meet Peter. You love me like a brother. And this is what Peter says. He says, you know all things. Let me tell you something. Even in, our rest, even in Peter's restoration, he didn't know what to say. Have you ever been in a place where you did not know what to say? That if you said one thing, you probably were in trouble. You said another thing, you were probably in trouble. That's where Peter's at. He's like, okay, last time I said I, I loved you and that I was, my love for you was greater than anybody else's and that didn't work too well. So I'm just going to kind of hedge my bets and go halfway with you. I love you like a brother, Jesus. Let's go with that. And what does Jesus say? He says, that's not good enough. Do you love me? And what does he say? I love what Peter says here. You know everything. You know my heart. You know, there are times that we need to just stay quiet. And we need to say, Lord, you know my heart. And if I open my mouth, I'm probably going to say something wrong. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Lord, you know that I love you. I can't explain it. I'm not going to try to explain it. But I love you. And I don't know where that's at. And I'm not going to be bold enough to, to say it because I know that I could fail, but I love you. And that's what Peter does. He says, all right, I blew it by proclaiming more than I should have in a time that I shouldn't have said it. So I'm going to back off and I'm going to say, Lord, you know my heart and you know that I love you. Three things are brought up then because there's a challenge given. We've got to close this thing out. The first thing we see is in verse 15. You see, Jesus restores us by face, making us face our failure square on. Jesus isn't going to skirt around these things. He's going to bring them up to us. And he says in verse 15, 
feed my lambs. There is a life of service that Jesus is calling us to. Write that down. He's calling you to a life of service. You want to reverse your failure and your shame? Reverse it by living a life of service to your king. In verse 15, he says, feed my lambs. The idea here is to train Peter. Peter, train and grow those that are young in the faith. What he's saying is, is you're going to be a leader here, Peter. Feed those. Make sure that they're taken care of. The young ones, the ones that are weak and defenseless, minister to them. Feed them the milk of the word. Next, we see in verse 16, he says, take care of my sheep. The thought here is of a lifelong devotion to the service of God's people, to administering to their needs, to caring for them, to maintaining the flock of God, to helping lead them and guide them, ministering to them, instructing them and encouraging them. This is an ongoing maintenance. It's not just to say, hey, um, all right, here's the word of God. Uh, Good luck and have a good day. But it's ongoing and it happens day in and day out. It's ongoing. It's funny, he says in verse 17, feed my sheep. The idea here is that lambs grow, and when they grow, they become adults, and that how we fed them in the first place may be different how we feed them today. Keith and Kate are going to feed that baby a certain way today, but hopefully in 10 years, she'll be eating steak. Okay. We're going to eat differently as adults than we did as children. And Peter is told, feed them, teach them, and continue to minister to them, even though it may be different different than the elementary truths that were taught. Hop it in here very quickly. You want to change your failures and devote yourself to a life of service to God. Give yourself over to God. Don't worry about what you did in the past, what failures you have. If you've given them to God, leave them. God says that they are forgiven. And He says He throws them as far as the east is to the west and He remembers them no more. And that doesn't mean that He forgets them, but that means He no longer holds them against you. So you don't hold them against yourself. Because you ain't as holy as God is. So if God says as the holy God it's taken care of, then the unholy person that you and I are, we should say, well, if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me to let's put these things to rest and let's start serving the Lord. That's what God is asking of us. Secondly, we see a life of surrender in verse 18 through 20 says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Church father named Eubius wrote that Peter would be in prison some 30 years later after um, uh, this point, after the um, ascension of Jesus Christ. 30 years later, he would be in prison for preaching Christ. And we know as a result of that, he would be crucified. And as being taken out to be crucified, tradition tells us that he said it was a dishonorable thing to be crucified on a cross like Jesus was. So that he pleaded with the executioner, please do not do this. But let me be crucified upside down. And that's what tradition tells us. Now, we're not sure how true that is. Of course, tradition is not the word of God. 
But if that is the case, and what we see of Peter in his later writings, we know that Peter, whether in his life or in his death, would glorify God. You want to get rid of your failures? You know, when we die, there's a thing called a eulogy. There's a thing called an obituary that talks about who we are. You want to change that? Then give your life over to God. You don't have to be defined by the failures that you've had or the shame that you feel. But you begin to live for Christ. And to say to live for Christ is gain. But to die as well is gain. Live in such a way that not only the life of service that you have glorifies God, but that even in your death, you would glorify God. We have been given an example, not only from Christ, but from Erlene, one of our own. Dell told the elders, we are happy either way. If God lets her stay here, praise be to God. If God takes her home, she is with her creator. Praise be to God. That is that I want in this church is Christians who surrender in their life and in their death, because that is what reverses the failures of our past. One final thing, and we close this out. We see that the reversal involves a life of selflessness. In verse 21 through 23, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? He's speaking of John. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that the disciples, uh, um, that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain until I return alive, until I return, what is that to you? Don't put your Bibles away. I'm hearing a lot of clearing of papers. Give me a moment. We'll close this out. Peter hears about this testimony and what's happening in his future. And what does he say? He says, what about John? Commentaries believe that what's going on here is that there's a rivalry taking place. Understand something. You want to get rid of your failures? You want to get rid of the shame that you've been living with? Then don't worry about anybody else but yourself. What Jesus says is don't worry about him. Peter, mind your own business. Don't worry about what others are doing. And twice he uses this phrase, and this is so very important for us this morning. He uses the term follow me. With every eye up here, I want to talk with you just for one second. And that is wherever you have failed, people of Village Bible Church, wherever you have blown it, where you have screwed up, I don't care what it is. And I will tell you, we could fill up that screen behind me full of all the sins that we've committed. If we were open, we would talk about all the shame that we have. And we'd sit there and say, I'm living in bondage to this. You want to change that? Jesus says, follow me. You know, this church has got a lot of bad history in it. And you know what? God has done amazing things. And I'm waiting for the day that people don't remember this church from years gone by, struggling with infighting and difficulty. But they will say there is a church that follows God. You want to change your name? You want to change the way you're defined? Follow Jesus Christ through a life of service. You serve the Lord. You surrender your life. And you don't worry about what anybody else is doing. You know, I am so glad God has given me a chance to preach the word of God because I grew up and people said, man, you're not going to amount to anything. And Jesus has said, I'm not done with you. I'm going to restore you in your times of failure. And I love it that people come and say, you know, I remember you being kind of a weird kid, but I just I can't remember what you did. I'm like, thank you. Lord." And you know what that is? That's the blessings of living a life of faithfulness.
You do that, and that shame and those failures will be gone. Let's pray. Father, as we close out our service this morning, Lord, I pray that my length did not detract from what you're wanting to accomplish here this morning. But Lord, I pray. I pray for those that hearts are hurting this morning. Lord, they sit there and say, Tim, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing right now. You don't know what goes on through my heads or what I'm putting into my body. Lord, you don't know. And Lord, I pray for that individual right now that you would come around them. Oh, Lord, that you would minister to them. And Lord, that you would move in their hearts to ask for forgiveness. And Lord, when you when we ask for forgiveness, you say you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray at that moment of restoration that Father, they would be released. And Lord, I pray that as we a people, sinners with sins in our past, Father, I pray that we would not sit there and live in bondage to our past, but that we would move to rewrite our future. And Lord, that that future and that present now would be filled with obedience where people look at us and say, I don't know what they did in their past, but they followed Jesus. Lord, let that be our motto. Let that be what resonates in our hearts today and as we go out through our week. For we love you and we know that a life of obedience brings you glory. So we do it with great honor in our hearts, excited about the renown that you will gain. And all God's people said, Amen. Go and fellowship with one another.